Hello and welcome, welcome to, to the New Books Network. New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today acclaimed historian Alistair Moffat to tell us all about his latest book published by Berlin titled Warpaths, Walking in the Shadow of the Clans, that recounts um, a series of journeys that Alistair took in the footsteps of the Highland clans in Scotland. Um, he went on 12 different journeys to understand what happened back then, what those places look like now, and what it's like to visit them. So, Alistair, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to tell us all about your journeys. My pleasure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did this uh, on days when it was, like today, very nice weather. So it perhaps wasn't exactly uh, historical in that sense because I could choose to go to these places when it was when it was good. And the reason for that was very simple. I wanted to walk not not the, the, the distances that the clansmen walked to battle. They walked, you know, sometimes hundreds of miles. Um, but I actually just walk the, the on places that they fought in order to better understand them and better understand why what happened happened. Um, and there's very good reason for that, which I'll come to in a minute. Um, but I was also very interested, Miranda, in in courage, in physical courage. Uh, soldiers who risk their lives, risk terrible injury uh, for a cause, for themselves, for their families, for their places, uh, and so on. And it struck me that the Highland clans in the 17th and 18th century had an extraordinary physical courage because they fought with bladed weapons, by and large. Many of them uh, owned pistols or muskets or whatever, but they were not their principal weapons. They fought with bladed weapons, just like Roman legionaries or Greek hoplites uh, 2,000 years before. And so their courage, their physical courage, must have been all the greater. Nowadays, soldiers fight at a distance. I I mean, the the consequences of warfare can be just as as devastating, but soldiers can shoot at each other over, you know, hundreds of of meters, uh, miles away, uh, and so on. Drones are routinely used in Ukraine and so on. And so this was very, very different. This was up close and very personal. Um, and so it was courage that that interested me, and I thought I'd better understand the courage and battle that the Highlanders needed to to have by going to their places, because these men were amongst the most feared warriors um, in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries, and they almost toppled the British state, and so. I wanted to understand how how they did that, and I thought going to the battlefields was 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 a very very good place uh, to try to get some impression of how they did that. And so I chose places where Islanders had fought and where the battles I thought had been had been pivotal. Battles are not always pivotal. Historians can make mistakes. Well, I make lots of mistakes, but make mistakes. The mistake of, of, of saying that something was absolutely pivotal. But some of these were, uh, in my view, particularly Culloden uh, in 1746, but others too. And so I went to these places because I needed to understand the ground, the physical, geographical place where they fought. And the reason that the ground was important was because the clans essentially had one tactic, just one, and that was the Highland Charge. That was all they did. If the charge failed, they were defeated. Uh, But for the charge to work properly, the ground absolutely had to be right. And so I opened the book not with the earliest uh, battles and the earliest examples of, of the kind of courage that I'm talking about, but I opened the book with a battle at Preston Pans um, in 1745, um, in September 1745. And I did that because there's a very good account of how and why the Highlanders moved 
to where they did in order to conduct the charge, in order for them to have an effective charge. And in the run-up to this, what had happened was that the clans had mustered at Glenfinnan in the West Highlands, uh, where Prince Charles and and the Marquis of Tullibarden and other people raised the, the royal standard. And they marched, very moved very quickly through the Highlands, partly because General Wade had obligingly built some good roads. Um, and they marched to Edinburgh and, and took Edinburgh without a fight. Um, and then General Sir John Cope uh, sailed his army down to uh, Dunbar, I think it was, and marched east towards Edinburgh. And the the Highlanders, the Highland army, left Edinburgh in order to confront him. And it was what happened next that was really important to me uh, in trying to understand how these men fought. When they reached Preston Pans, their scouts reported that the government army had taken up a very strong position. Um, they, they basically had a morass in front of them um, and cover on either flank, and also uh, their artillery was well in place above them. And so the Highlanders looked at this morass in front of the, the government lines and Lord George Murray, who is, in my view, the most competent general, sent Colonel Harry Kerr of Graydon to look more closely at the terrain between the two armies. And a very brave man, because soldiers shot at him as he did this, um, he examined the ground and reported back to George Murray that the ground was not suitable it was not suitable because it was boggy. It would hold up the Highland charge and that that would allow the government army to get off several volleys. They could, they could fire and reload and fire again at, as the Highlanders struggled through this boggy ground. And so although Prince Charles was desperate to attack, desperate to attack, Murray persuaded him that they should move to a different position. And so, under cover of darkness and led by a local farmer's son, Robert Anderson, they took a hidden track, a safe track through the march, the marsh, and it allowed the clansmen to move around the government army and confront them across sloping and well-drained and recently cropped cornfields, which were not boggy, which were good ground. And that was absolutely vital. It had to be good ground because what was important with the charge was speed of engagement, momentum. And so as the sun very slowly came up on the morning of 21st September 1745 behind the Highlanders, the government army looked out to the east as it gradually became light and the, the, the sea mist, the har, began to clear and they looked out to the east and they thought what they could see was a black hedge. But some of them realized that the black hedge was moving. What George Murray had ordered his men to do was to the front ranks to crawl through the stubble field to get as close to the, the government lines as possible. And then came the order, the Clymore, the order to charge and the war pipes skirled and the Highlanders stood up and raced towards the, the government lines and the, the Clan Cameron, often reckoned the bravest of the clans, Clan Cameron hit first, smashed into them uh, and drove them backwards um, and as the other clans raced across the cornfield and did the same, Clan McGregor were especially uh, devastating in the way that they dealt with the mounted dragoons. And the battle lasted possibly 10 minutes, 10 minutes, because the momentum of the Highland Charge blew away the government army. Men threw away their weapons and fled. Uh, and of course, as often happened, many more men died in the flight than the fight. And so when I went to Preston Pans uh, last year, 
Um, what I wanted to do was understand why the Highlanders had done what they'd done, why they moved. And although the site is cut through the middle by the, the main line railway from Edinburgh to London, and a great deal of mining took place in, in Preston Pans, um, and also the A1 road goes very near the battlefield. The cornfields where the Highlanders moved to were still there. And I could see why it was Murray wanted to charge from the east because the ground was also slightly sloping in his favour. And in Gaelic, the, the Highland clans called that Curum of Rai, the advantage of the bray, the advantage of the slope. And George Murray once jocularly remarked that even a haggis could charge down a hill. Um, and so it was perfect ground and they achieved the perfect result. Uh, in 10 minutes, they blew away a modern army armed with cannon, with muskets and so on, and cut them to pieces. So that was why I went to Preston Pans. That was the value, in a way, of looking at the ground, going to mm. the place where it happened. Mm. No, that's a fabulous example. Thank you for taking us through that. As you mentioned in that answer, um, that it's cut through from the London to Edinburgh train, obviously a lot of these battlefields are in somewhat different condition than they were when these you know, massive things were happening, even if the battle was technically 10 minutes, it had rather a lot of a f impact. So can you tell us a bit about kind of how you found the battlefields and what you did sort of practically when you were there, you know, taking notes, recording impressions, like what is it like to go to one of these battlefields? Well, I mean, perhaps the best example is, is Killiecrankie, um, which I, I, it's also cut through the middle by modern transport. The A9, the Inverness Road, you know, goes right through uh, Killiecrankie. Um, and that battle took place on the 27th of July, uh, 1689 and again this was a a jacobite rebellion so to speak um and much of the book is concerned that's why i was talking about toppling the british state is con concerned with the stuarts efforts uh to be um to to be restored um and when i went to Killiecrankie, it, it was once again um a, a the advantage of the bray that's what the, the, the leaders of the, the Jacobite army um, uh, wanted uh, was to, to be much higher up than the government army. And, and, in, and in effect, they, they achieved that. And so what happened was that I, there's a, because it's well known as a battlefield, and there's a National Trust for Scotland centre with a car park, I simply parked at the car park. Um, and I, what I do... When I go to, I've got many, many, uh, I, I've got a, a stationary uh, habit, I'm afraid. Um, I buy far too much stationary. Um, and uh, I can't get out of Ryman's without having spent a great deal of money. But one of the things that I do buy are, are old-fashioned police notebooks, which have got rubber bands on the bottom of them and a place where you can put your, your pencil. Don't take a pen when you do these things, because very often, if it's a cold day or whatever, and it's your only pen, and I was caught out this way once, the whole thing just seizes up. And so I make notes in this, this old-fashioned police notebook. But the most important thing that I have in my pocket is my, is my mobile phone. Not because I want to check my emails or phone anybody, but because these phones now have excellent cameras. Uh, that can take endless photographs. And I literally take photographs and sometimes videos as I move along because they're far better AIDS memoir, I think, um, than even the scribbled notes that, that, I, um, that I make. And so essentially, um, I, I parked at Kitty Cranky and I wanted to first of all look at the reason the battle was fought there. And that's because of the gorge um, where the, the River Gary uh, rushes down to join the Tummel and, and then the, the River Tay. And that makes Killiecrankie a gateway through the encircling mountains. And four roads 
four modern roads, as it were, are now forced through the narrow defile, each one jostling for space with the other. Um, and one of the roads is the railway, obviously, and then there's the old A9 and the new A9 and then another road. Um, and so it was the gateway to the lowlands, essentially, for the Highlanders. And, and Viscount Dundee, the... Um, the uh, Bonnie Dundee, the, the the Jacobite commander, knew the strategic importance of of uh, Killiecrankie, and so what he did was to, and he also knew um, that there was a government army at Dunkeld um, that was coming to to meet them, uh, led by General Mackay, and essentially, what he did, um, what Dundee did, was to wait. Um, he marched the clan army onto the uh, the top of the Bray um, at, uh, at Killiecrankie, um, knowing that Mackay would have to lead his government army through the gorge and onto the lower ground. So he would have Kuramavrai, the advantage of, of the Bray. Um, and also, he essentially... Dundee essentially waited. It was a very sunny day, um, and he waited until the sun moved behind the Highlanders because he didn't want them to be dazzled as they charged. And what's wonderful um, about Killiecrankie is that there's an eyewitness record, not of the Highlanders, but of the the government army. Um, There's a man uh, called Donald McBain, who is in the ranks of the the redcoats, um, and he was terrified. Um, they were looking up the slope at the Highlanders, and they were being encouraged by their chiefs to roar their war cries and so on. He was terrified, um, and essentially, but he'd also fought Highlanders before, and so he knew what to expect. He knew that the charge would come. Um, and so what I what I liked about Killiecrankie was that despite the A9 slashing right through the middle of the battlefield on the same orientation as the two armies formed up, um, you still get a very strong impression of why the battle was fought there and what Dundee was doing when he, when he, when he, he mustered his troops at the top of the hill. And when the charge came, um, it was devastating, absolutely devastating. And Donald Donald McBain, um, all he all he knew was that he needed to save his own skin, and so I'm just fine. Yeah, here it is. He, he he wrote this much later. I fled to the baggage train and took a horse in order to ride the water. That's across the the, the river Gary. There followed me a Highlandman with sword and targe in order to take the horse and kill myself. You'd laugh to see how he and I scampered about. I kept always the horse between him and me. At length he drew his pistol, and I fled. He fired after me. I went above the pass where I met with another water, the, the River Gary, very deep, and it was about 18 feet over betwixt two rocks. I resolved to jump it, so I laid down my gun and hat and jumped and lost one of my shoes on the jump. The enemy pursuing hard, I made the best of my way to Dunkeld, where I stayed till what of our men was left came up. And this is the famous soldier's leap at Killiecrankie. And there's Donald McBain. And I, I, I don't think he was making that up. I think he actually he did jump 18 feet um, or whatever it is. I mean, the, the, I think the world record long jump is only a bit longer. And if I was being cheered, chased by a hairy arse Highlander, I could probably jump 18 feet. Um, but nevertheless, it, it was it's an interesting testimony because it's not from a general or an aristocrat or uh, an officer. It's it's somebody in the rank and file, uh, an ordinary soldier who left this 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 testimony, and so I, I think that was that was really worth having. And the other thing that I liked about Killiecrankie was that it perfected. Um, the Highland Charge. Now, people mistakenly think that this was some kind of crazy free-for-all melee where, you know, hordes of ululating uh, 
kilt-wearing Highlanders waving their claymores above their head charged. Uh, it wasn't like that at all. It was very disciplined because the Highland Charge was originally called the Irish Charge, and it was perfected in Ireland by a remarkable warrior um, called Alistair McCullough uh, in the middle of the, the 17th century. And there's a famous song sung by Capper Cayley uh, called Alistair McCullough. And it's a walking song, you know, one that's got a real rhythm as the women walk the cloth and thump the table and so on as they're walking the cloth uh, to, to make it thicker and, and to felt it. And I, I've always enjoyed it, and I thought it was just a walking song that took Alistair McCullough's name because he was a Highland hero. And I, I, I looked up the lyrics, and they are absolutely fascinating. The first verse is Alistairik o ho, Cholagasta o ho, Asdolaivsuskun o ho, Yerbentapi traum ela. And at the end of each line, there are these what musicologists call vocables, which are nonsense words, o ho, and so on, he, re. You hear them a, a, a good deal. And they're there to keep the meter and the melody and so on. But the last line, Yerbentapi traum ela. Um, I thought, no, Traumela means something. And the, the first verse translates as, Alistair, the son of gallant Kola, into your hand I would entrust heroic command, Traumela. Now, that's not evocable. Um, it, it means, or it can mean, another charge. And so what the song was, was an incitement to charge. Um, and the whole song is 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 actually a record of the year, what I call the year of Great Alistair, Alistair Moore, um, and the the battles that he fought with with Montrose, Viscount Montrose, uh, in sixteen forty four and forty five, again on behalf of the the uh, the Stuarts, um, and what what the what Alistair McCullough did in Ireland was to perfect a particular means of charging. What the Highlanders did was this. They first of all cast off their plaids because they were too heavy, and they fought in their linen shirts, their linen sarks, knotted between their legs because they were long. And they had essentially some of them had pistols and muskets, but essentially they had a targe, a small round shield, not much bigger than a dinner plate. On if they were right-handed, it would be strapped to their left forearm, and in their left hand. They had a dirk, which could be a 10 or 12 inch, very sharp blade. And in their right hand, they had their sword, often a basket hilted sword. And these were sharpened to razor, razor sharpness. Uh, you were touched by these swords, you'd be cut. And so what they did was to charge, as Donald McBain knew they would, down the hill. And then they would stop. Um, and they would charge within 20, 25 meters of the, the enemy lines. And those who had firearms discharged them. And old-fashioned firearms create a great deal of gun smoke, <clears throat> a lot of clouds of gray gun smoke. And so they shot their pistols and, and, and muskets and so on. And in the gun smoke, they formed into wedges, 12, 14, 15 men with the oldest man at the front, at the point of the wedge. And as the smoke cleared, the wedges charged the Highland lines with the aim of breaking through, of getting behind them. And once you got behind them, the battle was over. That was when the Highlanders' ability at sword play, which was tremendous, was taught to them as children, as boys, that's when the Highlanders' ability at sword play came into its own. They, they were dazzling swordsmen. And so at the wedges were really effective because we must remember that these clan armies are not recruits in the way that we think of modern armies. They were all related. These men were brothers, fathers and sons, uncles and nephews, and so on. Now, soldiers fight for each other, they fight for their mates and their country, 
but these men were, were, were fighting for their families. They were fighting for their brothers, their sons, their fathers, and so on. And so the ferocity with which they fought and protected each other was, was quite different. And so when the wedges broke through, as they did at Killiecrankie and as they did at Tippermuir uh, 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 30, 40 years earlier, um, when they broke through, the battle was essentially over. But this was perfected, this tactic was perfected in Ireland and used in virtually every clan battle. And it's a mistake to think that this was simply a mad rush, you know, a crazy sort of effort to get to the the enemy lines and, and, and fight them. And the reason that they, they lost at Culloden in April 1746, and they were undefeated, they were undefeated until then. The reason they lost was because the ground was bad. It was very boggy, and clans slewed into each other to avoid quite deep pools and so on. And also, the government army were more disciplined and had better tactics, and they fired canister shot, grape shot, which is musket balls, fragments of metal, and so on, at close range, and these were devastating to the clansmen. And so the wedges were never properly formed, and the Highland charge was not properly executed at Culloden. But whenever they did it, whenever they executed it, they won. They won. Um, and I think that's the important point, the thing to try and understand about these men. It was not a kind of atavistic, crazy, savage, primitive uh, way of fighting. It was sophisticated, but it required tremendous physical courage. I think the answer you've just given us is really helpful in, as you said, debunking that myth of it's just a bunch of flailing people running at you. I'd love to ask you to tell us a little bit more about something you mentioned in that answer, that the Highland Charge comes from Ireland. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Uh, uh, I mean, Alistair McCullough is a MacDonald, was a MacDonald, and Clan Donald had branches in Ireland in the well since the the lordship of the isles in the middle ages and the the uh mcdonald's from the hebrides often went to ireland to fight on behalf of their kinsmen and also to fight um and this is in the mid 1600s you know because of the plantations by the 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 british crown the 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 uh the planting of protestant settlers in in ulster there was great internal strife, as it were. Uh, and so Alistair McCullough was fighting on behalf of the Catholic forces against Protestants. And it was in Ireland um, that he, I mean, the, the, the origins are, are a little mysterious, but there's a description of Alistair McCullough uh, fighting um, at a place called Laney near Ballymoney, um, close to the Protestant town of Coleraine in 1642. And it was there um, that he gave the order to his men to charge the soldiers of the garrison. And it was there that they suddenly stopped, fired a single volley from their muskets or pistols at close quarters, dropped them, drew their swords and charged again. And that was the first time that the wedge was recorded in 1642. And then when Alistair McCullough came with many, many Irish soldiers, um, to join Montrose in his dazzling year in Scotland, uh, 1644-45, um, he brought these men, these Irishmen with him, and they understood how to execute the charge. Mm. Thank you for clarifying that. I think it's a really interesting additional aspect to consider on this point. The examples you've given us so far um, really do make the case for the importance of the physicality, as you said, of the ground itself and understanding what happened. I'm curious, given that you went to so many different places, had you been to any of them before writing the book? Um, if you had, what was it like to go back to a place you'd been, but with this particular lens? Well, I'd only been to Culloden uh, before and, and pretty much as a tourist. And and it's you know it's 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 
got a good visitor center and all the rest of it. But I, I was in Inverness for other reasons, and and I, I at that time I'd not really much interest in it, and I'd to be honest, largely forgotten because um, it was so long ago. Um, but I hadn't been to any of the others. Uh, I'm pretty sure, and not even to Preston Pans. And I'm only I live only an hour away from Preston Pans. Um, and I had been to Dunkeld, but again for different reasons. Um, and all of them were were undoubtedly uh, fresh to me, so to speak. Um, but also, I'd become interested in in swordsmanship um, and and the Highland martial tradition, um, which which sustained for a long, long time. In fact, before the Battle of Culloden in 1743, um, King George was very interested. I mean, George the, the, uh, the uh, God, I can't remember which George it was, the second, I think. Um, I wish they'd give them different names. Um, they, he, was, he was very interested to, to try and understand something because he'd heard what great swordsmen they were and so he made inquiries or his agents made inquiries and they were told that somebody called Gregor Boyoch, Gregor Drummond whose name was really McGregor and Gregor Boyoch means Gregor the Beautiful uh, was the greatest swordsman in the southern the southern highlands and his his friend James of the colour Seamus and Dahan was was also a great swordsman and so King George had his men abduct these two warriors, essentially, and bring them down to London um, to uh, uh, one of his palaces. I think it might have been Richmond Palace. I'm not sure. Um, and uh, essentially, they in the courtyard below the royal uh, apartments and surrounded by many, many uh, government soldiers, these two men, Gregor Boyoch and Seamus and Dahan, Put on a display of swordsmanship, which was apparently dazzling, throwing these weapons around and so on, uh, catching them and and doing an, an amazing display of the flashing blade, so to speak. And King George invited them, sent down his flunkies to bring them up to to his uh, into the presence in this big hall, and. The difficulty was that neither party spoke much English. Um, the Highlanders were Gaelic speakers, and King George spoke German, and so there was a bit of coughing and um <clears throat> and um and ah and so on. Eventually, King George directed them to each to be given a golden guinea, which was a great deal of money, and Gregor Boyach was furious at this, and. And insulted, uh, and he said, "Hanilson eregit hashani yanushaw ach urum." We do not fight for money; we fight only for honor. And they stormed out of the hall. And as the flunkies opened the door, they were amazed at the Highlanders handing them the golden guineas as they left. Now it's a funny story, but it does it does underline the position. The, the importance of being skilled as a swordsman uh, and and not and the reason why you fought you they did the Highlanders didn't fight for money they certainly plundered of course they did because they got no pay um, but they, they it, that the reason that they were fighting was for their their, their 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 clan their families their land their traditions and their past. And that's important to understand, you know what generals call elan in armies, the, you know confidence, uh, and you know the the, the 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 being convinced that you'll win is absolutely vital. You must believe that you're going to blow away the opposition, and when you race into the charge, my goodness me, you must must believe that, otherwise you'd be rooted to the spot, shaking with fear. I would be. Um, without any doubt, and so Gregor Boyach saying, you know, we we only fight for honor, um, is important. It's not a cliche. It's not a, um, you know, something glib. It matters. Urum, honor matters without a doubt. Thinking about the importance um, that these 
as you said, the clansmen attached to these battles, to what they were doing for themselves. In a lot of ways, I had sort of expected reading the book that given the importance of these battles, given the importance of them in um, history of the people who were involved in them, in the honor, in the history of the clans, I was expecting that quite a lot, if not all of the battlefields you talked about would have, as you said, for Culloden, right, a visitor center, um, sort of information about them, documenting them for um, history, for people today. And yet it sounds like, or at least from reading the book, I understand that not all the places you visited were necessarily as clearly marked. Um, so can you tell us a bit about kind of some of the practical difficulties, I suppose, in, in finding some of these battlefields and why it might be the case that they've been neglected or lost? Well, I mean, I think it's important to understand that they're just fields. I mean, there's no ruined ruined abbey or, or castle or, or whatever. They're, they're, they're part of the landscape. And, you know, battlefield archaeology generally consists in musket balls and discarded bits and pieces and so on. There's not much to find, generally speaking. And, uh, and of course, the, you know, bones of, of, of mass graves, perhaps, that kind of thing. But yes, you're right, Miranda, when you say, you know, that these places, only Culloden, really, and to some extent, Killycrankie, are 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 marked. I mean, I went to places which have absolutely nothing to to say. This is where you know the battle at Mulroy, for example, the last clan battle uh, near Spean Bridge, um, has nothing. And when I was looking for the battle at Tippermuir, which was the first place where Alistair Macaulay's charge was seen in Scotland, it, there's nothing whatever to tell you. That it took place in in the the fields that I I walked through, and down, the only thing that I had I could find was the old gallows road, and I knew that the government army or the the uh, Covenanter army as it was then, um, had disposed itself across this road because it was the main western uh, approach to Perth, um, but when I parked I wasn't even allowed to park, uh, one one point. Uh, all I could find was the Gallows Road. There was nothing to tell you that a battle had been fought at, the, at that place at Tippermuir in, in 1644. Um, nothing at all. And so I had to piece it together. But in some ways, that's part of the challenge and part of the interest and a great deal, you know, part of the fun of the thing is to, to figure out why it happened there and what happened on that ground. And there are places, without any doubt, um, that you can do that. I, when I was writing in in uh, the um, the first decade of of the twenty first century, I can't think what you call it. The naughties people call it, and so it sounds a bit odd. Nobody was very naughty, and I, and I was anyway. It's another story. But um, it, when I was writing, I began to get a series of anonymous letters uh, with no address and no signature and no name, just signed "Our Reader." Um, and the reader was, you know, clearly reading each book as it came out. Um, and he or she was very critical, <laughs> very critical indeed. They offered all sorts of things like, you know, please try not to use a dash. It's not punctuation. It's simply slovenly. Uh, and what, what else? Oh, yeah. Posterity is not a synonym for history. You overuse the ablative absolute at the beginning of paragraphs, all this kind of thing. And I, I appreciate that because if you don't like criticism, you know, you're not much better than an ego attached to a keyboard. And so I received the last letter. And the reason I knew it was the last letter from this person, I think it was a woman. And I have in my mind the image of a retired primary school teacher. And the last letter came inside another envelope with a compliment slip from a care home and a phone number and an address. And I could have rung them and said, who who sent this? But this person didn't want me to know, so I respected that. Anyway, what she said, and I'm sure it was a woman, what she said was basically, you need to get out more. <laughs> you need to go to the places where history happened. And it was the best advice I've ever had because places have... A genius Lockeye. Places have spirits. There's no question about that in my mind. 
Some places are more powerful. Some places are famous because of their atmosphere, like Iona or Lindisfarne, and I've written about both. Basically, battlefields can be like that. And although Culloden has a splendid visitor center and is well laid out and flags show you where the clans stood and so on, it has that atmosphere. And what I discovered at Culloden was something really quite extraordinary. Um, I'd heard this story many years before, but going to the place made it come alive. When, when the government army marched onto the moor, Dromossi Moor, Culloden, and formed up with the Taradiddle and so on, their sergeants, majors and so on, all shouted to the men to form into lines and look to your fronts and all that sort of thing. And opposite them, the Highlanders were standing in clan regiments, family groups. And at first, the government army thought that the Highlanders were singing psalms. Many men did, because what they were about to do might have brought them nearer to their god. Um, and many of them knew that some would die. Um, but they weren't singing psalms. What the Highlanders were doing was reciting their genealogy. There's Misha Makiain, Ekruri, Ekemish, Ekiain Laum, and so on. Many men could go back 20 generations. What they were doing, the Highlanders, was summoning the army of the dead. That's what they were doing. They were summoning their ancestors, the memory and the prowess and the war glory of their ancestors, summoning them to charge at their side as they raced across the moor into the canister fire and the, and the, the fusillades of the government army. And at Culloden, I knew that story before I, I went there. And at Culloden, I felt it keenly. Um, I felt it keenly. One of the things that is sad about the battlefields that are not as well signposted and well uh, documented as, as Culloden is that people seem to forget that many men died there in these places. Many men died in these places, and they deserve reverence and respect. It didn't matter why, what their motivations were or what happened, they died. And many men died long and hideously agonizing deaths because bladed weapons rarely kill outright. And after Culloden in particular, many men simply bled to death, you know, fate fading in and out of consciousness, screaming in pain, um, and so on. And all that suffering deserves proper memorializing, I think. Um, and there's so little of that. Now, Sheriff Muir, 1715, which was really the, the Jacobite rebellion that should have succeeded. Now, Sheriff Muir, there, there is a monument raised by Clan McRae, and it's very touching. It's in Gaelic. Um, and one other monument, but what I found at Sheriff Muir was a quite powerful sense of place, quite powerful genius loci, um, and it was much in it was much of its commercial forestry, and that blankets the land and hides it in a way. But the top of the moor at Sheriff Muir had been clear felled, um, and I could see north to to the the mountains. Um, but when I walked along the paths, I noticed that the blaeberries were all ripe, these beautiful, sweet little purple berries. Um, and I bent down and picked some of them and sat on a bench and ate them and looked at, and it was a sunlit day, a beautiful day, and looked at the, the trees which were beginning to turn, the hardwoods, birches and so on, beginning to turn with the winter as the year faded. Um, and I, I felt, I felt the presence of those men in that place. It was on my own. There wasn't anybody else there, and I felt their presence very keenly. And it was the blaeberries that triggered it. I'm not sure I understand why. Um, and sometimes I think history is somehow made more intense and more real and more immediate if you don't understand why, um, because in that place many men died. Um, and I, I think it's it's sad that 
th these aren't remembered. You know, we, we see cemeteries all over Scotland and Britain, indeed, which are Commonwealth war graves and so on, and that's good. Um, and sunk sunken ships are, are, you know, designated as war graves, and so they should be, uh, and, and so on. And, the you know, the, the cemeteries on the Somme and in Flanders are quite remarkable, but there's nothing like that in the Highlands um, to remember these men. Um, and it was the Blaberies, uh, Sheriff Muir, that that really brought, you know, brought the tears. Um, and I thought that was, that was in a way the, the most atmospheric place I went. Um, and it surprised me. I didn't expect it to be because I knew f from photographs and maps that it, it was commercial forestry. But in fact, it turned out to retain somehow the memory of, of those men. Mm. I think that's a really important point, obviously for that particular um, place that you visited, but also I think in a lot of ways speaks to some of the broader themes of the book and findings really from this experience. So I think aside from my final question, I think we'll end it sort of on that note. Um, and my traditional final question is that now that people can go read this book, it's available for people to read. Is there anything you might have your eye on to work on next? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely, I, I do uh, constantly have projects. I'm very fortunate, um, but I, I, uh, I, and I, I'll, I'll tell you what those are in a minute. But I, I, what I'd like to do, Miranda, if you agree, is just to read something um, uh, from the end of the book, uh, which I think is important in in understanding these these places. Um, and if that's okay, I'll, I'll do that, and then I'll answer your your question if if, if that's all right. And because I went to a place that I'd been to really many times since I was a, a young teenager, and had spent a week or so uh, making a film when I was much older, uh, a film about Bill Forsyth's local hero, a lovely film, and it's a beach called Camas Darach in in Mora. Uh, and I hadn't been for many years, um, and so I decided that the last thing I would do—it's not a battlefield or anything like that—it's not even near a battlefield. That the last thing I'd do was to go to to Camus Darach, and so I, I just want to to read a little bit, um, and then I'll come back to what you asked me, if that's all right. I walked down a high-sided path like a sandy tunnel through the dunes. When I reached the beach, it was like a reveal in a film and it opened before me in all its heartbreaking beauty. Beyond a wide strand of perfect pale yellow sand, the waves gently shushed as the tide retreated, and beyond the waves, framed by the horns of the dark rocks on either side, it seemed that infinity stretched across the ocean. I stood for a long time, tears prickling and running down my cheeks, remembering all those people who had made me, many of them long gone, others dispersed, and I was glad to have come back to this blessed shore, to have set eyes on Camus Darach once more, a place of turning moments in my life. It felt to me that almost 60 years before I'd begun a journey in this place, and now it had ended. I knew I'd never come back. There would be no need to. It was as I remembered, magical, eternal, elemental, a place of spirits where the music of the wind whispered, where echoes of an immense past drifted over the waves. The rain had stopped, and as I walked across the perfect smooth sand, I saw that behind me I'd left no footprints. If this place could affect me so deeply, a man born and raised in the borders, a world away, its rolling fields and sheltering river valleys very different from the majesty of Mora, how did it seem to Alan MacDonald and the 150 clansmen he led from here to the muster at Glenfinnan in 1745. Beautiful is not enough, and yet it is everything. This bay of intimate loveliness and vaulted grandeur was empty when I came, but to MacDonald and the generations before him and his men, it was home. Some were on the shore every day, fishing, catching scuttling crabs, prizing limpets off the rocks, collecting cockles, mussels, playing, learning, travelling up and down the old road, sitting in the evening dunes, watching the sun settle in the west, silhouetting the far coolin, exchanging words of love. 
and when they began to leave, and the white-sailed ships slipped over the horizon, its beauty tore at their hearts. At Kamasdarach I could hear more clearly than anywhere on my journey what Gaelic speakers call the music of the thing as it happened. Here in the horned bay, the shadows of the army of the dead flitted and flickered in the clear air, passing across the sand, leaving no trace, swirling around me. I picked up a piece of stone, shaped like a large arrowhead and glinting with scintillas of crystal. It was red and heavy, a piece of red granite, or perhaps Lewisian gneiss, one of the oldest rocks on earth. I washed the sand off it in a rock pool and put it in my pocket. All the time I've been writing these passages about Camastarach, I have clutched the stone in my left hand. And that I ended the book with that because, in the end, that was what the Highlanders fought for. That's why they charged across the heather. That's why they risked their lives routinely. It was for their places, their families, their clans, their heritage, all of that beauty and all of that glory. And I thought it was important to remember that at the end of what's a story of, well, violence and, and blood and battle and, and, and conflict and, and terrible things that went on. So that was, that was I think, important to, to remember, really. And, um, and anyway, you asked me what I was working on. Well, I, I, goodness me, Miranda, it couldn't be more different. I'm writing about shopping at the moment. <laughs> I'm doing a, a personal history of Scotland since 1950, which is when I was born, um, an awful long time ago. And it's it's not just about shopping. It's about all the changes that have taken place in Scotland in my lifetime. And uh, The reason I jokingly call it the book about shopping is because that's one of the most radical things. You know, We'd never heard of supermarkets when I was young. Hadn't heard of them in the 1970s even. And I think it was 1994 uh, that Tesco bought uh, William Lowe, an indigenous Scottish supermarket. And so that's a huge societal change. You know, before fridges, before cars, before you know, ownership of all sorts of things, people used, my mother used to go shopping every day because we, we had no fridge. Um, and the shop was around the corner and the grocer, Pack, packaged everything for you, cut the cheese for you, put the flour in a bag for you, and so on. And so it's about all these changes, um, and it's it, I'm absolutely loving it. And uh, I think we'll call it to see ourselves. Um, and it's uh, it's really about uh, how modern Scotland, or why modern Scotland, and how modern Scotland looked looked the way it is. So, so yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a long it's a long way away from Canister. Well, it sounds. Just about as interesting, if in very different ways. So best of luck with that project um, and look forward to seeing it finished. But of course, while you're working on it, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Warpaths, Walking in the Shadow of the Clans, which is available from Berlin. Alistair, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Great pleasure. Thank you, Miranda. <laughs>